Welcome back to the Argentina Project Podcast, brought to you by the Wilson Center. I am your host, Benjamin Gadan. And I am your producer, Katie Hopkins. On the podcast today, we venture to the George Washington University campus to sit down with the legendary Cynthia McClintock. She's an expert on election rules in Latin America. She's a former fellow at the Wilson Center. We are at another unnamed coffee shop. Of course, it has a name we just refuse to say it. No free marketing, but please consider sponsoring the podcast to give your firm a shout out. In this episode, Dr. McClintock breaks down the different election systems in Latin America, and we talk about why Argentina's quirky system means for its election in October. Now on to the interview. Professor McClintock, thanks for joining us. Oh, many thanks for the invitation. We're here in Washington, where there's a lot of focus on the U.S. Democratic primary and the coming United States election. The system is pretty straightforward, notwithstanding the quirkiness of the Electoral College, which is to say that the candidate that gets a single more vote than their opponent is the President of the United States. That is not the case in much of Latin America. Can you tell me a bit about the origins of Latin America moving to more complex, multi-round election systems? Sure. I think the biggest catalyst was the election in Chile in 1970, when Allende, a leftist, won this very narrow plurality of 36 percent. It was a very close election, and there was a widespread sense that, hey, this guy didn't get 50 percent. Is he legitimate or not with only 36 percent of the vote? Who would have won? Who would really have gotten the 50 percent? Now. For a lot of reasons, you know, Latin American political spectrums have been a lot more divided than in the U.S., so I think the immediate catalyst was just, hey, we don't want presidents elected with 36%. There was a case in Argentina, Ilio, the same thing. Was, was this really legitimate, and can they govern with such a small mandate? But a whole other question that we'll get into with Argentina is this question, can new parties get in? You know, I think this is very recent in the United States, too. There's this question that, hey, are we really happy with just the Democrats and the Republicans? Uh, now I think it's a majority that does want a third party. Um, but really tough to enter the political arena when any third party is a spoiler, is in our conventional term. Right, so when you say Latin America, these political systems tend to be more divided, you're referring to multiple parties participating in these elections. Exactly. In, in the systems, you still will get all these parties often represented in Congress and, and all the governability challenges of a president that may not control his or her lower, lower upper house in Congress. But at least what you're referring to is a sort of legitimacy of a majority win. Exactly. That um, you've come in and more than half of voters at some point in the election have chosen you. Exactly. Exactly. And what that meant was that most Latin American countries chose a 50% threshold. And what you mentioned at the start, you know, Argentina did not. Argentina did not. And a couple others haven't either. You know, it's... Um, of the 18 Latin American countries with competitive elections, uh, 12 have uh, runoff at 50%, but there are four that don't. Argentina is uh, one of them. So that's an interesting story, too, exactly why that happened, but it's one with a lower threshold. And in Argentina, this came from this compromise between you know, Menem and the opposition, the radical party, in reforming the Constitution. Menem, of course, wanted to stay for a second term, and in return for that right, agreed to some other changes to the electoral system. What would be the advantage of a lower than 50% threshold when you've said the whole idea of the second round has been to lend legitimacy to the winner? 
Exactly. Well, Menem was very clear about why he wanted the lower threshold. And you know, this is often the case that the, the party with a strong base, i.e. in the case of Argentina, or the strongest base, the Peronist party, they say, hey, we know we're really pretty close to that 40% and we can get it. We're not sure we've got a majority, but we can get that 40%, so let's go with that threshold. And it makes it much harder, as we can talk about a little later, for the third party to enter, the fourth party to enter with that 40% plus the 1040 threshold. Now, in terms of the quality of a debate in a presidential contest, I mean, you allude to the idea that in the United States, the third party option is always shouted down as a spoiler, damaging the chances of the closest aligned party. In a system of the second round, theoretically, it broadens the contours of the presidential debate, and then in the second round, those voters can migrate to where they properly belong. Does it play that role effectively? I mean, when you watch Latin American elections closely, as you do, do you see these third parties playing an important role in, in diversifying the debate, and broadening the margins of, of conversation? Oh, definitely, I think, definitely. Let's take the case of Chile, for example, where there was kind of the legacy parties from the left and then the legacy parties of Pinochet. And, you know, for quite a while, they're kind of like 50-50. And then more and more people began to say, hey, Pinochet, we don't really like this legacy. And sort of from that coalition, Sebastián Piñera you know, breaks loose and says, no, I'm not going with the Pinochet folks anymore. You know, he stakes out his position, and yeah, they divide in one election, but he comes back and prevails. So you kind of get, you know, a third option that's prevailing. Now, in a lot of Latin American countries, the situation is considerably more uh, fractured, you know, and, and one of the reasons the 40% threshold has been established, Ecuador, for example, where they have like 11 parties, and they're trying desperately to get any party that can kind of have a, any kind of a base. And ironically, at the same time that they adopt that threshold, in comes Correa, and he, he gets a base. Uh, but usually it's because they're having so much problems with fragmentation and new parties. And uh, of course, Peru, the country that I study the most, you know, also tremendous fragmentation. So new party after new party, new party. But Argentina, of the countries with some kind of runoff threshold, it was only Argentina and El Salvador uh, that had the two same strongest parties in the legislature at the first democratic election after 1978 and 2012. They were the only two of those uh, 12 countries. So uh, here's what we're seeing there in Argentina. Again, it's the Peronists with a very strong base, the Radicals for a long time with a very strong base. So if you break off and you divide the Radicals or you divide the Peronists and each of them only gets to say, let's you know, let's say Peronists have got 40%, Radicals have 20%, and then someone new is trying to come up, but they get 20%. Well, then the Peronists have won with 40% a 10-point lead. So that's why men have wanted it. Now, you talk about governability, and I think we should dwell on that for a minute. It's something that um, is not readily understandable by people who don't follow regions of the tumult in politics that we've often seen in Latin America, including in, in the modern period. 
you know, what type of governability issues do you have in mind? I mean, there are some who think the region, frankly, needs parliamentary systems because when you have paralysis with a different party control in Congress and the presidency, you know, it's not sustainable. The coalition building is, is quite difficult. What do you mean by governability and what can really go wrong? Maybe not as extreme as the Allende case ending with a brutal military dictatorship, but certainly a lack of reform and a lack of, you know, cogent economic policy. Tell me about governability challenges if the system produces presidents that have not received the support of 40%, 45%, let alone a simple majority. I think it varies considerably. I mean, take the case of De La Rua in Argentina, you know, where my understanding is you know, kind of the Peronist opposition was one obstacle after another, and there's kind of a goal, certainly at least in uh, the mind of the radicals, that they're being obstructed at every turn by the Peronists. You know, that um, another case would be uh, Peru, right, sort of at the moment, where, you know, the president was from a new party and the legislature was dominated by a very strong, relatively disciplined party, and again, it made life difficult as possible at every turn because of militants that, hey, we're just going to get revenge, we should have won. But then there are also very other situations, much Brazil is probably the classic example where there's some 10, 12 parties and they're not all that ideological and maybe they, they, maybe they didn't even care who was really the president, but hey, let's get a little more, let's get something out of this and so there's a lot of corruption and that was where some of the corruption under the Workers' Party in Brazil began where Lula was trying to pay off legislators in order to bribe them to his side. So it, it, there are different situations, but I think there is, you know, not that it's always a great thing to have the executive have total control of the legislature too, but on balance, I mean, if you're talking about getting things done, there definitely can be problems. Now, in the United States, there are at least experimenting with second rounds. I think they do it in a simultaneous ballot where you list your preferences, and if there's no simple majority, um, for any particular candidate, then you take into account second choices. Do you get the sense that the record in Latin America of this practice is positive enough that it could serve as a, a useful case for even older democratic systems like our own? Definitely. Absolutely definitely. No, the record has been very positive in Latin America. Uh, in my book, Electoral Rules and Marx in Latin America, no, I compared the trend of Freedom House scores and varieties of democracy scores under runoff countries and under plurality countries. And I think these graphs are very dramatic. You know, the problem in plurality countries of minority presidents who have no chance of getting 50% of the vote, exploiting a divided opposition. And this has been obviously much less a problem in the United States, but in Latin America, where these divisions in the opposition, and uh, perhaps the most egregious election was Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua in 2006. But there was, again, he had also manipulated to get a low, a 35% threshold. We didn't think the Sandinistas could even make it to 40, and no one thought he would have had a prayer of winning the 2006 election if we'd have to get the 50%, but he got the 38 and won, and we know what happened after that. Before we conclude, I'm curious what this system does to the platform, at least during the campaign, of the candidates who are now facing the second round and this, uh, you know, search for the votes from that third party or fourth, fifth, sixth party, depending on the case. 
is there a sense that it does moderate the platforms as they try to capture other voters? I mean, what does it do to the agendas of candidates when they are now faced with the challenge of capturing the votes that have gone elsewhere in a first round? Yes, I think that's a big reason. We haven't talked much about that uh, so far. I don't think it was sort of originally when Latin American countries adopted the runoff that was so much on the agenda, but certainly in the United States, it's been really, really salient again, from folks who believe that the, both the Democrats and the Republicans are being pulled towards you know, extremes. And the record shows definitely you know, that the runoff and ranked choice voting that both you know, lead to candidates saying, hey, uh, either in the case of runoff or in Latin America, hey, we've got to get, first we've got to get a majority. We can't rely on our base. We can't rely on the 40 percent. We've got to get to 50 percent. So we've got to appeal to everybody more or less. And we want those votes from the people for whom we are our second choice. So we've got to appeal to them. And uh, in the book, I have this data from a survey organization in basic Spain. And, now, it was very clear that there was much more likely that extremes of both left and right under plurality than, than under one else. Very interesting. Thank you very much. We appreciate your work, your scholarly work in this book that uh, inspired our conversation, and it has helped us reflect on the Argentine election, which is, of course, coming up in October. The primaries are in August, and this system itself is getting a lot of attention. This could be only the second time that there is a runoff in Argentina, um, though, as we discussed, the idea of the runoff has been around since the Menem constitutional reform. Um, it's been used once in the last election in 2015, and there seems to be a good chance, according to the polls, that it'll be used again. We'll be watching closely to see if it has these effects that you project. It seems to have had already in terms of the candidates choosing moderate running mates um, and, and a rhetoric that um, seeks votes and support well beyond their core base because the plurality is not enough. Dr. McClintock, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And thankfully, our producer is a wonderful editor. That's me, Katie Hopkins. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to the Argentina Project podcast on SoundCloud and sign up for our weekly newsletter at wilsoncenter.org slash weekly dash asado.